All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is, that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. That is how many are the required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Arad, which is beyond the Jordan. They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of of Arad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel uh, Mizraim, that is, beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, where Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this was written for our instruction, that we might endure and through the encouragement of the Scriptures have hope. As the God of endurance and encouragement, grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through the Scriptures this morning, that the Spirit would enable us to trust in Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. In Christ's name, amen. We all sort of have those uh, memories, those, you, those times when you know 
on a national scale, something happens and you remember exactly where you were. There are a few of those moments in my life. I remember watching the shuttle Challenger in my hotel, not my hotel, my dorm room in college on the little TV that my mom gave me. Shocked. Surprised. But nothing, nothing matches what, for, for most Americans anyway, what we remembered this past week. I was in a presbytery meeting, a committee meeting. It was a called meeting, and I came out, and we were told that something was going on at the World Trade Center. And sort of disbelief, because all the details weren't in. We had our presbytery meeting. It was a short one, thankfully, and we went for lunch. And I remember standing at the barbecue place, just watching the little TV, dumbfounded, as it just showed the planes crashing into the building. Not only do we Americans remember where we were when we first learned of this, but we remember sitting and watching for days. Life stopped. I mean, how often can you say in your lifetime, there was no baseball without a strike? There was no National Football League without a strike. And yet they stopped for days, People were stranded in different parts of the country because the planes wouldn't go, and everyone's scrambling to get rental cars. Life was interrupted. It came to a screeching halt. In this passage, in, in a sense, life comes to a screeching halt for these people. It has to continue, and yet there are things that have to take place before they can continue on. There really is no uh, big idea this morning. But there are three things that I see connected with how we live out our faith in the midst or in the face of death. The first part is that faith clings to God's promises, even in the face of death. With the blessing of his sons done, Jacob has one more request for them. It's really a command. This is not a whim. But this command is rooted and guided by the promise that God gave Jacob. He asked them, bury me with my fathers. He wants his body to join those of his parents and his grandparents. Now, we, might, we should not mistake this with mere sentimentality. Something along the lines of, I want to be buried in my blue suit. Or my special tie which I would say had the Red Sox logo on it, but I don't have one of those. So, But it's that sentimentality that is at play here. It is faith that is at play here because he belongs there because of the promise that God had given about the land of Canaan. He shared the faith of Abraham, the faith of Isaac, and dare I say the faith of Sarah, in the faith of Rebecca, He shared their faith in the same God. He shared their faith in the same promises. And he wanted to share in the fulfillment of those promises, even in his death. And so he says, bury me with my fathers. He's staring at, at death so close, he can almost feel the breath. Bury me with my fathers. And he mentions repeatedly 
He used to bury them in the place that Abraham bought from the Hittites. And you almost get, I almost get sick of reading, you know, um, the name of the field. And Ephron, the Hittite, from whom he bought. He's very laborious in explaining all of this, Moses is. Both when he recounts what, it, what Jacob said and when he recounts the fulfillment of this. This was the first fruits of the land. The only portion that they owned. A burial place. That's where he wants to be. It belongs to him. And that's where he wants to be buried. Abraham was buried there. He lays it all out. Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, and it even says Leah. This is the first mention of her death that we find thus far. I don't remember anything of it. Interesting, it's Leah, not Rachel, who was buried in the family tomb. Leah, the wife he didn't want, is the one who's buried there. How many of you contemplate your own death? You sort of lost that. That's an old Puritan thing. Trying to live your life in light of the inevitable death you will experience. We tend not to think about this. We're Americans, by golly. We want to push the thought of death into the, the deepest, darkest resource, recesses of our brains and not really even think or consider it. But if you do, if perhaps that thought comes up because you're going to the doctor or someone else you know has passed away, if for some reasons in God's providence that thought comes up, don't push it away. But think, what comes to my mind? Is it the promises of God? Is that what I think of as I face my own death? The promises of God? Paul wrestled with his death in Philippians chapter 1. He desperately wanted, in a sense, to be with Jesus, and yet he also wanted to be with his people and to encourage them. And in Philippians 1, he writes, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better than remaining in the flesh. And so one of the things that as we face our death, we should keep in our minds is that, like Paul, we should long to be with Christ first and foremost. Sometimes we add that as like a secondary or tertiary thing, but it ought to be the foremost thing in our minds. We are gathered not just to our fathers, but we are gathered to Jesus. That to be absent from the body is not to be in sort of a non-existence, a temporary non-existence, or a soul sleep, but it is to be in the presence of Jesus, to be with Him before the heavenly throne. It's to be present and worshiping and serving Him, awaiting another day when you get a body back. Is that what grips us? Is that what sustains us as we look and stare face uh, uh, death in the face? The second thing that we ought to be concerned about, we ought to, that ought to come to our minds, I believe, is that we should long to be with the saints awaiting that consummation. We're not only gathered to Jesus, but we're gathered to the invisible church that sits in heaven with Him. Hebrews 11, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, 
since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Part of what the author of the Hebrews is mentioning there is that with this better covenant and the coming in of the Gentiles, the Old Testament saints that he's just been outlining who died in faith, they're not made perfect. They're not made completely mature and whole until we all get in there, until we join them. And so part of that that promise that ought to sustain us in the face of death is that remembrance that it's not all together yet. The God's people have not all been gathered yet, but I'm going to be gathered with all of them, and there will be others who will come after me. And together, the bride of Christ shall worship Him and adore Him. And so impending death focuses us on what is most important to us. But Jacob was not the only person in what happened here. Faith also clings to God's promises when grieving. Because this passage highlights Joseph. Moses focuses on Joseph, the favorite son, in light of God's promise to Jacob. Remember, as as, uh, Jacob is preparing to go down into Egypt, he has a vision from God. And and part of what God says to him in, in Genesis 46 is, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. You're not going to be away from me just because you leave the land. I'm going to be there. And I will also bring you up again. But then he adds this, And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. It's so customary. I saw it on TV the other day of someone dying with their eyes open and someone closing their eyes. And he has given this promise that it is going to be Joseph, the son he loved most, the son he hadn't seen in years He was the one who was going to close his eyes. So that's part of why Moses is focusing on him at this time. Okay. How does Joseph respond? He wept over him, kissed him. This is no reserved, polite sorrow. Joseph is not a cavalero. My family does not know how to grieve. I remember, I barely remember my grandfather's dying. That's how important it seemed to be. <laughs> it was almost like a non-thing when I was five. My grandmother passed away shortly after, one of my grandmothers passed away shortly after the uh, challenger exploded. And I remember I was in school in Boston and my uh, grandmother lived in Haverhill, Mass., which is not all that far away. Half an hour, perhaps. And my mother said, go to class. Don't worry about it. And I listened to her. And it's tied into the fact that my family doesn't do death. We don't know how to grieve. When my, my grandmother died last year, again, it was, there's no memorial service. There's no closure to my grandmother's life. It's like she's in another world. That is not 
Joseph. He wept. He was loud. He was noisy. It was messy. Have you ever wept so loudly? This may hit home for some of us this morning, but the other night we were at home and we were watching a movie and someone had to put their dog down. And I thought of my dog. That's what I wept. I was a babbling mess thinking about my dog. That's Joseph. When the snot runs down, it's just you're a mess, but he's expressing Love. This is an outpouring of love for his father that is so deep that the, te- the river of tears must flow. He must kiss him. It's appropriate for him to grieve in this way, to be heartbroken. But Joseph is also grieving with an eye toward Canaan. He has a hope that God will fulfill the promise that was given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and also to him. It is on the basis of this hope that he departed from the custom of the Jews, even today, because he had his father embalmed. This was an expensive process. The ordinary person didn't have it done. This is for rich people. And fortunately for Joseph, he's rich. All right? And so he has his father embalmed, and that, that was a process which is very different from today. But it set up today, and what they would do is they would remove all of the organs, and then they would place you in this liquid bath with, with uh, spices and salts and preserve your body. And so this would take 40 days, this whole process, sitting in this bath. For the most rich, for the pharaohs, it could take up to 70 days. They wanted them extra Preserved, I guess. I'm not sure exactly all of that. But you know, the Egyptians did this with an eye toward the afterlife. They wanted the body ready for the person's journey into the afterlife. And that, but that is not why Joseph does this. Joseph is doing this for Jacob's journey back to Canaan. Because there's no way in the world they can get the body back and bury him in any sort of honorable estate unless he is embalmed, unless his body is preserved. It won't make it there. It will decompose. We think even of the, 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 in, uh, the reading from John that we had this morning. We missed that part. But they were talking about to Jesus that Lazarus was, had already been in the tomb four days and he stinks in there. You don't want to open it. Okay, That is what Joseph is avoiding by having his father embalmed. The journey to Canaan to bury him. We see here that the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. Unbelieving Egypt mourned for the son of a Jew for 70 days. Life in Egypt, essentially stopped. If they had flagpoles, everything would be at half-mast. Perhaps their sports may have been curtailed for that period of time. We're not exactly sure how life was interrupted for them, but they make note that they mourned for this man 
for 70 days as if he was the head of state because they worshiped, they mourned for Pharaoh for only 72 days, a mere two days more. They showed great honor and respect to the father of Joseph. That's how significant he was to them. How are we to mourn? We, on this side of the cross, how is it that we are to mourn? 1 Thessalonians 4, I think, informs us in this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He reminds them that when there is a person who is in Christ, who believes that Jesus has died for their sins, who Jesus is their Savior, that when they die, when they fall asleep, we are not to be people who grieve without hope, but we are to specifically to grieve with hope. Doesn't mean we don't grieve. We cry, we weep, we mourn, but we do so with hope, with an eye to the resurrection. That this is not the end for that person. They are now in the presence of Jesus. They are now awaiting the consummation and they are awaiting the resurrection from the dead where they shall receive the new body. We worship we, as we, even as we mourn. We believe that they are with Christ. It is when they die outside of Christ, refusing to believe in Him, that we mourn like the world mourns. Because for that person, there is no hope. But we can still recall our hope in the midst of that. And so our faith helps us to grieve rather than short-circuiting our grief or somehow lapsing into despair like those who do not believe. Let's move to another aspect of faith. Not only does it cling to God's promises in death, and it clings to God's promises that we grieve, but also it fulfills the oaths that we take. Much of this passage was taken up with Joseph and his brothers fulfilling the promise that they made. We don't talk about that a whole lot, do we? But Moses wanted to stress this. Because Israel needed to remind, remember this. As they take on many vows and oaths, uh, as they were prepared to go into the land, that their obedience was important. And so we see that Joseph does not set aside his oath to Jacob. He recognizes it as a vow before God, which is what it was. But Joseph also recognizes that he cannot just do what he wants. He has to go to Pharaoh. And so it talks about him going to Pharaoh's household. And so it's sort of a, um, he's getting an intermediary to sort of, um, uh, you know, plead with Pharaoh on his behalf. But he's saying that my father made me swear. This is not just a whim. I don't just want to go back to Canaan. This is my father made me promise on oath and covenant, and therefore I need to bring him back and bury him in the place that his his grandfather bought. Can I do that? He's seeking permission from Pharaoh to fulfill his vow because he is under the authority of Pharaoh. He does communicate that it ultimately wasn't his idea, and yet he is seeking to honor his father. 
just as Pharaoh had with declaring 70 days of mourning. But note that Joseph says, I will return. He wants to let Pharaoh know that this is not an opportunity, a guise, a ruse for him to kind of sneak away and not come back. And in light of that, they're going to leave the children behind. They're going to leave the livestock behind. But the adults are going to go and to bury Jacob. But it's not just them. This is going to be a state funeral. There's going to be chariots, the elders of Egypt, troops to provide protection from the bandits that might take them captive and try to get money out of them, dignitaries. All of these people are accompanying the Holy Family on one of the longest funeral routes you'll ever see because they traveled for weeks up into Canaan. Good thing there weren't any stoplights there, huh? Watching this, you know, don't you, don't you maybe just miss it? You know, you have to wait for the funeral thing to go by. And this would have been a long one because you think of all of the sons of Jacob and the adult grandsons of Jacob and the dignitaries and the chariots and the troops and all the supplies that are needed for the journey. That's one long funeral procession, brothers and sisters. And his sons carried him to the land of Canaan. All of them went to fulfill the promise, not just Joseph. And there on the, on the brinks of the, of the, the banks of the Jordan, essentially, they grieved seven more days. As if the other seventy weren't enough, they grieved seven more days. And it was not just perfunctory, because there's a, a bitter weeping that takes place. Somewhere along the line, Jacob went from not even close to father of the year to being beloved by his sons. God made a big change in Jacob. Had to have for that to take place. Because of all of the earlier dissension that we see among the brothers in the ways in which they were bitter towards their father and all of that seems to be gone. What matters now is they loved him and they will miss him. They buried him in the cave, the right cave, the one that Abraham bought. They obeyed all the way. They didn't think it was enough to bring him to Canaan and just try to toss him in it in the first random cave that they found. They brought him to the right place. They, were, they fully obeyed their promise. Israel, the original audience, needs to keep their vows and oaths. It was important to their relationship with God. They were not to think lightly of giving their word to God and taking these vows and promises and oaths. Our promises, our oaths, our vows matter precisely because righteous people keep them. That's why we read Psalm 15 this morning. That's one of the aspects that it talks about that the righteous man, the one who can dwell with the Lord, is one who swears even to his own hurt and keeps his word. There was one story in my life I alluded to, and Christopher Hall kind of said, that's the story I want to hear. Here it is. <laughs> it has to do with that verse. I was almost engaged, and 
my girlfriend wanted to visit her parents, wanted me to go with her, and I was like, yeah, sure, let's go. This is the weekend we're going to go, let's go. And then there was a youth event, a fundraiser. And I said, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And I already started to collect, you know, get people who were going to sponsor me for this fundraiser and all that. Well, then she switched the dates on me, decided, hey, you know, that's a better weekend because it's a long weekend. We can spend more time. And I wrestled because I'd given my word. And I, and I was trying to think of how this plays out. I can visit, we can visit with your parents any weekend was the reasoning I made. I don't know if it was good reasoning. I think it was, but I don't know. But I can't do the fundraiser in the old time. I have no control over that. I have control over this. And it really sort of revealed some of the rift that was underneath everything else in our relationship. So it wasn't that Steve didn't go to New York that weekend. It was that there was, it just revealed certain things that were not right in our relationship. And so that was the, the catalyst for this relationship that I thought was going to end in marriage, that she thought was going to end in marriage, to ending period. Does your word matter? Do you feel bound to keep your word? God keeps his. In a world full of promise breakers, there is one promise keeper, and that is God himself. And yet he, as he sanctifies us, also makes us people who keep our word, who are faithful to our promises. That's part of progressive sanctification. Keeping our word. Now today, in a little while, earlier than I anticipated, which is good, you're going to be taking some vows with Amy and myself. This shouldn't be a mere formality. Oh, you know, Stu was asking us the questions. Of course we do. No. Recognizes that you're promising before God to do certain things, and your intention should be to do them. And if your intention is, is not to do them, then don't make the vow. That's part of what it what Jesus is talking about in various places, such as when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, be a person of your word. Because God is a God of his word. He keeps it. And you are supposed to bear his image. You are his child. Be, be one who learns to keep his word. This is part of what he also meant. Says, By every word of your mouth, you will be held accountable. He's not merely talking about every time that you cuss. Are you breaking your word? Are you deceiving others? Our words matter. Our vows matter. And so we see a, a positive example by Joseph and his brothers. I mean, what a motley crew. Who would have thought they'd ever keep their word? <laughs> and so you see again evidence of the grace of God in their lives, that they have moved from deceivers who sold their brother into slavery, to now they're men of their word by the grace of God. 
So it's not just Jacob who changed, but it's all of his sons who changed in those years because God was at work in his people and God is at work in us so that we too, by faith, keep our vows. And so we see that life came to a halt for the Holy Family and much of Egypt. But we also see that their faith didn't come to a halt. It revealed itself. And it revealed itself in particular ways. It revealed itself in Jacob facing his death with the hope of promise. I want to be buried in the land. It revealed itself in Joseph grieving with hope in light of God's promise. I'm going to embalm my father and bring him there. It revealed itself in the brothers keeping their promise to Jacob because of their faith in God. And so when life is interrupted, faith matters. But faith must be there first. Faith must be strengthened first with an eye to that day. We need to live in light of that day just like the Puritans did. We don't know when that day of crisis is going to come into our lives, but are you growing in your faith to be able to stand on that day? Or are you just hoping that day never comes? The latter is a pipe dream. It will lead to disillusionment. And I don't want to be there with you when it all falls apart in the disillusionment. I want to be there with you as you weep in faith. Let's pray. Father, sometimes your word deals with the things that we don't want to deal with. It stirs up the stuff that we wish laid hidden in a corner. But you do it because you love us. Because you care about us. You care for us. And so, Father, we ask that I don't know what your word's going to do in the hearts of all of your people. But I ask that it would accomplish your good and holy purpose, your wise purposes, your loving purposes. That we would be growing in our faith in light of that day when the rains come and the sands are blown away. So that when the day of difficulty comes, by faith we stand. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.